Well, today's Good Friday, and we're in the middle of this story, and we're really at the, the culmination of the passion narrative as Jesus is now on the cross, he's been crucified. As we've been tracking through his life, we've been seeing his story, and we get to this moment that it's really all been leading up to, where he's on the cross. There's this unjust trial that goes on. There's suffering, there's hardship, there's mocking, and now we see him on the cross in Luke 23. And one of the things that happens multiple times is this statement is made to him, save yourself. Save yourself. Save yourself. Why don't you save yourself? If, who, if you are who you say you are, if you're really the Messiah, if you're really a king, why don't you save yourself? We see this occur three times in Luke 23. The first one's in Luke 23:35. It says, And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Again, in verses 36 to 37, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And again in 39, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. These assaults that are directed at Jesus are, are directed at his identity. Who are you? You say that you're the Messiah. You're to be the king of the Jews. But if you really are, why don't you save yourself? Save yourself. And what we're going to do tonight as we look at this story is we're going to ask this question. If Jesus is the Messiah, if he's the chosen one of God, the one with favor and power from God, why does he not save himself? Why does he not save himself? You see, to them, it appeared so foolish that a king, that a ruler, rather than defeating their enemies, would be on the cross being crucified. Perhaps they could imagine that a king would come in and crucify their enemies, but this looked to them like foolishness. So if Jesus is the chosen one, if he's the Messiah, why does he not save himself? First reason we're going to look at is that Jesus doesn't save himself because in his suffering... He's actually fulfilling God's plan for the Messiah. We see this in verses 34 through 36. There's these clear details that Luke puts in to, to point out and to show us that what Jesus is doing is not some accident. That Good Friday isn't a mere incident. It's not a failure of Jesus, but this is actually the intentional plan of God. Starting in verse 34, we, we see this. It says in, in verse 35 and 36, we get several details. In verse 34, we're told that they cast lots to divide his garments. And this is a fulfillment of a prophecy in Psalm 22, which is a prophecy in a psalm about an innocent sufferer, someone who's suffering innocently and who's going to then be vindicated. But Luke includes this detail purposefully to show in the midst of all the chaos, in the midst of all that's happening on this night or on, the, on this day, that it's not a mistake. They cast lots for his clothing, as the scriptures have said, as it's been prophesied. In verse 35, we're told that the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, he saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Once again, this is a fulfillment of Psalm 22, 
where it says, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. And then again in verse 36, we're given this detail that Jesus was given sour wine by the soldiers who were mocking him, which is a fulfillment of Psalm 69, 21. And the point that Luke is driving home in all these details, these intentional details in the story, is that this is not an accident. That Jesus here is actually, through his suffering, fulfilling the plan of God, as was foretold that the Messiah was going to do. And this is important because what you see in this story is that the fact that Jesus is suffering is a stumbling block. People are wondering, how could this possibly be the Messiah? How could this be the Savior if he's suffering and killed and mocked and crucified? Yet Luke goes out of his way to show us that this is actually the evidence. The very thing that they think is the evidence that he's not the Messiah is actually the evidence that he is the Messiah. It's through his suffering, it's through his death that he is fulfilling the promises that God has had for his people. And you look in this story and it's almost like everything seems out of control. There's an unjust political system. There's people being swayed by crowds to make decisions, to hand Jesus over. His own disciple, Peter, denies him. Judas betrays him. Many of them are fleeing. And in the midst of this chaos, what we see is that one person who really knows who he is and really knows what's going on is Jesus. He's the one who's not given to the anger of a crowd. He's not given to the demands of others. He doesn't flee for his life. He's not betraying. He's not denying. But he's resolved to go forward with this plan. He knows who he is, and he knows what he's going through. And so we see that Jesus doesn't save himself, because actually his suffering is the plan of God. This is the reason why he came, so that he might suffer And his humiliation here, him going low in the cross and being crucified, mocked, put low, is actually his path to glory. His humiliation is his path to glorification. In the midst of these assaults on his identity, there's a sign that's put over his head in verse 38. And verse 38 tells us this, that this sign that was put over his head says this, this is the king of the Jews. Now imagine what this would mean for the Roman Empire to write this sign in this inscription. In a way, it's, it's showing their power over the Jewish people. The Roman Empire is an empire that is ruling over them. And they say, you, you know, if you want to have a king, this is what he looks like. He's crucified. This is the power of Rome over you. There's, there's a mockery in this sign. And so for Jesus here to be called the king of the Jews is meant as an insult, as a sign that he's really not the king. Because how could he be? Because here is a crucified king. But the great irony in this story is that all these things that are going on are actually just proving that Jesus is the king, that he is the Messiah. Unknowingly, people are fulfilling the prophecies. And here this inscription in this moment is speaking the ultimate truth, that here is the king of the Jews. Here is the king. Here is the Messiah. Here is the Savior. It's the ultimate truth in this moment. And we may wonder, how how can this be? Why would a king need to suffer and die? But ultimately, the reason for that is because Jesus here is on a mission. 
He's on a rescue mission. He's going to save a people. But if he's going to actually save his people, he needs to confront their enemy. He needs to go into the darkness. He needs to go into sin and death if he's going to deal with this. We think about this in just some of the most classic ways. You think of a story of a prince going to save the princess in the tower. What does he have to do? He has to traverse through the dangerous lands, and then he gets there, and he has to confront his enemy, whether it be a witch or whether it be a dragon or a serpent or a basilisk, whatever it is, the prince has to go. He has to approach the danger and then rescue his princess. This is the classic story that's been told over and over. What we see here is who is Jesus? He's not the one who merely sets up a kingdom by drawing power and authority to himself, having others serve him. He actually comes as a suffering servant. But in his mission on the cross, he is going all the way down into the darkness. He is going all the way down to the enemy. He's actually defeating sin and death. But the only way that he can do that is by truly confronting it. So here Jesus is going to save his people from the power of Satan. But it's going to cost him. And it's going to cost him his very life. And Jesus' path to glory here, to bring about his kingdom, this reconciling all things back to God is a path path of seeking glory that's so unlike how we often seek glory. Think about how how we seek the good life. How, How do we seek glory in the good life? You see, we often seek to promote ourselves. And yet here, what does Jesus do? He makes himself a servant to all. He puts himself at the very lowest point. See, we so often seek ease and comfort, yet what does Christ do here? He endures the suffering of the cross. We seek human approval, but we see on Good Friday, we see in Jesus' crucifixion that he embraces the rejection of people. He willingly goes through with it, seeking only the approval of his Father. See, we we seek the best foods, the best culinary experiences. That's how we conceive of the good life. Yet here Jesus is drinking the sour wine on the cross. We so often seek to defend ourselves, and yet Christ is beaten and mocked and hated, and he doesn't even open his mouth. Like a sheep before its shears is silent. We can so easily treasure our possessions. We want to have things set up just right, the best appliances, the best things in our lives. But Christ is stripped of his very clothing, And what he has, his clothes are gambled over in his humiliation. We seek to save our lives, but here we see Jesus' path to glory is that he is going to give up his life so that he would save us, that he would save a people to himself, that he would free us from the power of death and sin and the devil. So this is the mission of Jesus, that he does not save himself because he's fulfilling the plan of God, which has been foretold. He's bringing a people to himself so that his kingdom is one in which he receives all glory, all honor, and all praise as the one who has brought all things back to God that were lost. He's reconciling all things back to his father. And in this moment, we see the mockery, but we know the end of the story. We're told in Philippians 2 that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. But we see in this story the mocking that's given to him. 
So Jesus does not save himself because he's fulfilling the word of God. And he's on his path to glory through suffering. But the final reason we'll look at that Jesus does not save himself ultimately. It's for his glory. He saves a people to himself. He, he saves us. That Jesus doesn't save himself because he is saving us in this moment. In verse 34, we see Jesus as he's being crucified. And we just want to note what Jesus prays as he's being crucified. This is verse 34. As he's on the cross in this moment, he prays out this prayer. He says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And just think about this for a moment. Jesus is being crucified in this moment, and yet what is he doing? He's actually praying for his enemies. It's possible that this prayer is directed immediately at the uh, soldiers who are crucifying him, the Roman soldiers. But it seems more likely that what he's actually praying is a prayer for all those who have conspired against him, all those who have gone against him. He's saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. It's not that there's nothing they've done wrong, but he's pleading their forgiveness even in their ignorance and their rejection of him. And we see something of the heart of God in this story. John Wesley, when remarking on this passage, says it this way. He says, how striking is this passage? While they're actually nailing him to the cross, he seems to feel more the injury they did to their own souls, more than the wounds they gave him. And as it were, to forget his own anguish out of a concern for their own salvation. That here Jesus is feeling this compassion and this mercy even in the midst of his suffering because he's on a mission to seek and save the lost. He's on a mission to save his people. And even in this moment, he's pouring out his prayer. We see the heart of God towards sinners in this story. That Jesus on the cross is pleading for the salvation of those who are killing him. And it's startling. Now, in this passage, there are many responses to Jesus that we read through. We see the centurion. We see uh, people who are mocking and, and many, many different responses to Jesus. We see the disciples who flee. We see some of the women who are standing there watching and are faithful to him in this moment. But in verses 39 to 43, we're going to look at just two responses that I think capture well the response that we can have to Jesus. In verse 39, we read about the two criminals. There's a criminal crucified on both sides of Jesus, and Jesus is in the middle. It says this, One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Think about this criminal. He's on the cross being crucified because he's guilty. And as he's being crucified, he takes his last moments to ridicule Jesus, saying, are you not the Christ? When it, when it uses the word rails against him, it, it could also be said he blasphemes against him. So this is not a faith in Jesus. He's not truly confessing faith that Jesus can save him. He says, save yourself and us. He's, he's ridiculing Jesus. In these last moments of his life, he's blinded to what's actually happening right beside him. Because he says, save yourself and us. But what he doesn't understand is that Jesus is the Christ. 
and that his mission of saving his people is actually unfolding right before his eyes. That Jesus did come to save us. But in his blindness, and his rejection, he does not know or experience that salvation. But the other criminal on the other side says this. He says, do you not fear God, responding to this man. He says, do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. He's saying, don't you fear God. You're, you're, on the, you're being crucified. You're on the cross. And don't you see that this man is innocent? He's done nothing wrong. And, and looking to Jesus, he says this, verse 42, and he said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus' response, he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. See, this, this man deserves judgment, and he knows it. He knows it. He knows it's just that he's being condemned on the cross because he's a criminal. And his life has led up to this moment where now he's in the final moments of his life being condemned as a criminal. But as he considers Jesus, he thinks this, this man's done nothing wrong. And he believes in him. He has to be received. And Jesus says that he will be received with him in paradise, that he will be with him in paradise. Now, just, just think about it for a moment. If this criminal was to give a reason why he should be accepted by God, what would he say? God, God I've, done, I've done a lot of good things in my life. Like, how, how would he stack up in judgment? His life has led him to this point where he's obviously done much wrong to get him to this place. If he's going to have any hope before God, it's not going to be in himself. It's going to have to be in Jesus. These last moments of his life, he looks to Jesus, and he believes and he trusts. And he's a, such a prime example of what it means for us to be saved by grace through faith in Christ. It's that we look to Christ, we trust him, we say, well, I have nothing to offer you, God, but I see what you have offered to me. I see what you have done for me and your son, Jesus. And Jesus promises to this man and to us that if we believe, if we trust in him, he will receive us. That we will receive us into paradise. That we will be with him. And so the question we want to ask today is, how do we respond to this Jesus on Good Friday? We see three men crucified, Jesus and two criminals. Jesus is the one who's innocent. And really you could say that all of our stories could be captured by one of these two criminals. We either deserve judgment and reject Christ, or we deserve judgment and accept Christ. But all of us are in the spot where ultimately before God, we cannot plead our innocence on our own. And yet here we see in the story that Jesus is the provision for our salvation. That why does he not save himself? He doesn't save himself because he chooses rather to save us. And you see, in this moment, Jesus is not just receiving the judgment of the Roman Empire or the Jewish leaders. There's something far greater going on in this moment, and that's that Jesus is actually receiving the judgment of our sins upon himself. He's experiencing the judgment of God, which is why he can say to the criminal who's dying, 
and who will still die on the cross being condemned by the state. You can still say to him, you'll be with me in Paris because the cost of that, the way that this man can escape ultimate judgment is through the blood that Jesus is shedding on the cross. This is why Jesus can pray, Father, forgive them because he is the provision of this forgiveness. He is paying the cost. His body and blood is the cost of our salvation. And it was on the night before he was betrayed, on the night he was betrayed, before he was crucified, that Jesus gives the bread and the wine as the symbols of his body and blood. That he has given up himself for the salvation of his people. And tonight, on this Good Friday, we're going to be taking communion together. And in this communion meal, we remember that Jesus has given us his body and his blood for our salvation. Remember the story of Good Friday, that Jesus went to the cross, that he stood in our place so that we might have peace with God. See, we see the heart and the love and the kindness and the grace of God in Jesus. And when we take communion together as a church, it is a, a tangible and physical reminder. When you take the bread and the wine, it's a tangible and physical reminder of the story that we go back to week after week after week as a church. That because of what Jesus has done, we have everlasting peace with God. That this is the hope that we have as a people. And we know that if Jesus saved us at our worst, then he surely will love us and be with us today. If he's brought us to us while we were enemies and he was praying for us, then surely he is faithful. And we're reminded of that as we go to the communion table. And on Sunday, we'll, we'll see the conclusion of this story because the story doesn't end with Jesus' crucifixion, but the story ultimately leads us to his resurrection where he has proved victorious over sin and death because it no longer has power to hold him down. But tonight we're going to take this communion and we're going to remember what Jesus has done for us and the confidence that we can have before God because of him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your mercy to us. We thank you for Jesus Christ who was sent from heaven to save and rescue and redeem us. We thank you that he chose not to spare himself so that we might be saved. We thank you that it's the great love of the Father that he would send his Son. It's the great love of the Son that he would go. And it's the power of the Holy Spirit that we are cleansed from our sins and Jesus' blood and body are given to us. Lord, I pray for brothers and sisters in this room who are struggling with shame, who are struggling with doubt, and who are struggling with sin. We pray for your confidence as we take the communion table, as we partake of it, Lord, as we as we take these things, I pray that in our hearts and our spirits that you would strengthen those who are weak in their faith right now, who believe and yet are struggling. Would you give them 
confidence as they look to you. Lord, we thank you for the victory of Good Friday on the cross. We thank you for the confidence that that gives us to approach you. And I pray that you administer in countless ways here tonight as we take this meal together. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.